Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all out. It's great to be together. And it's great to uh, worship together. If you're a visitor with us, uh, you're really, really welcome. It's great to have you join us this morning. Um, just a quick emphasis on what Bruna announced there around Wednesday nights. I know some of you will be familiar with um, what we do when now and again we kind of break the state of a Wednesday night rather than lurking and pour it down for prayer, we move into different locations. The reason for that is that we really feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to um, be a, a resource church in the area. And so we um, we thought that there's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a rule in warfare that you never send the ground route ground troops in until you establish a, a kind of win or a victory in the, in the air. And when you apply that to prayer and the kingdom, <clears throat> we want to we wanna see spiritually breakthrough happen um, in the heavenlies and strongholds weakened and broken in the places where people have gone in and lived and tried to express the kingdom. And so in places like Kara, which is in the middle of Kurgavan. Some of our young adults that were part of our church family over the years have gone there to see God establish something in North Lurgan, in, uh, just on the edge of Kilwilkie there, in Shalom, and uh, in, in Mournview. Um, these are places where we really want to see God's kingdom break in and where people are living there and trying to incarnate the kingdom there. And they don't have the same resource or critical mass of people as we do. So we really want to see them as our family and use these nights to really get mobile and go into those places and just you know pray our best prayers for God to see ground taken. Okay, so please please do <clears throat> not try to see Wednesday night as a night off, but as a night to go and really support and uh, lean in to what God's doing. Okay, we're continuing our <clears throat> excuse me. We're continuing our cultivate series this morning. We have. Um, been going through this since the start of the year. I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll probably finish it off next week, um, and then we'll be hitting Easter Sunday um, two weeks from today with our baptism. Um, I hope and pray that um, you have uh, found this helpful. Um, I think it's going to be one of those um, parables that we'll keep returning to. I think it will have hopefully led a bit of a deposit and a foundation and a language for us to understand how the kingdom works. Because as we've come to realize, this parable is the parable of all parables. It's the parable about the parables. Um, Jesus said that how would we understand all the other things that he was going to say unless we first of all understood this particular parable. Because <clears throat> this parable is telling us something. I ho hope that's become clear over the last number of weeks. Um, it's telling us how we receive the kingdom, how we understand the kingdom of God, how we understand the reality that is breaking into this everyday reality that we know. There is another way of seeing, of understanding life, Jesus was saying, and it's under his rule. It's the way things happen in heaven that are breaking into earth. And so what we learn about this particular parable is... Um, what Jesus wants us to realize is how we receive the kingdom in our hearts is really, really important. The reality is many people are going to hear about the kingdom, but only a few are going to properly hear the words of Jesus, okay? So the question is, are you hearing authentically, if you like? Are, are you really hearing? I mean, we're all hearing me speak right now, hopefully, if you've been blessed to be able to hear. Um, but 
Jesus isn't talking about just this physical hearing. He's talking about spiritual hearing. Can you really hear what Jesus is trying to say about his reality, his beautiful, life-giving, human, flourishing kingdom that is breaking into our world? And so we've come to know that the seed is good, the seed is always good because it's the seed of the kingdom, and that is latent. It contains power to raise the dead because it's the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is, it is powerful. And so if the conditions of the soil are right, the power of the seed can be trusted 100%. You don't need to doubt the seed. The seed is 100% full of the power of the kingdom of God. But the effect that that seed has is dependent upon the receptivity of the hearer. That's what this parable is all about. So can, can you receive the good news that Jesus is trying to communicate to you and to me and to the world? Who will really hear? Who will hear authentically? And so what we found is we've explored three ways that people hear deficiently, if you like. There are those at times when the seed is sown that it will fall on a stony path and it this doesn't even really get a chance to take root because there is an enemy who doesn't like your life. In fact, there is an enemy who is out to completely destroy your life and to destroy the purposes that God has for your life. He's called the devil. We don't like him around here and he doesn't like us, but we are on the winning side and he comes to steal that particular seed. He came As soon as it's sown, he comes to steal it from the path. And then there's seed that gets sown, and it seems like it does kind of, something's happening, but as the trials and the persecutions, and because it costs to follow Jesus, and as that gets a bit tough, we find that the rocks snuff out the life because the seed hasn't really taken root. So the first one, it's stolen. The second one, it doesn't really take root. And the third one is thorny ground. It seems to take root for a while, but then the, the deceitfulness of riches, just the curse of life, which we've looked at and Bruno chatted about a few weeks ago, it chokes, it chokes the seed and therefore it doesn't mature, it doesn't ripen. So in one, one's the, the, the stony path, it gets stolen. The rocky ground, there's no root. And in the thorny ground, it just doesn't mature. You just don't see any fruit with it. And so you'll be glad to hear that we're talking about the good soil this morning after all those weeks on the other ones. And Debbie lent into this a little bit last week about hearing the word of God. Let's go back to the scripture and just see what it says. So Matthew's version says this. Still other, f other seed fell on the good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. And then later on down on the same chapter, He's, Jesus is describing and interpreting the parable, and he says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. <clears throat> we are having a, a live case study, if you like, of how the seed is combusting with power and multiplying in our building project and the finances that are coming in. It's wonderful to see as people sacrificially give how God is increasing that 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And uh, we want to encourage you to keep doing that. And we're praying, and I'm praying, blessing over this body because you will see the fruit of that in your own life. 
um, when you give obediently and sacrificially, we not just see it as a community together, praying for the release of that blessing in our own lives, for the provision for all that we need. In fact, let me just do that for a moment. Can I do that? I feel in my spirit. I just want to pray that over you just for a moment. God, I just oh, thank you, Lord, for all, all that we're learning about the seed. Thank you that this seed, when it falls on good soil, it brings forth fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And God, I just want to pray, Lord, right across this body for the supernatural provision that comes in response to obedient and sacrificial giving. I pray for those, oh God, who are struggling at the minute financially, thinking about provision. God, I want to pray that you would bring about a blessing that surprises them, that shows the exponential ways that we can never outgive you, God, that you always will give more than we can ever give. And God, I pray for the release of that. I just even since this morning that there's some people in the room that are questioning even or curious to see, is this actually the case? And God, I pray that you would encourage them this morning with the promise of your provision in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is Matthew's version of this parable, um, which we have spent most of the time looking at. And he interestingly focuses on the yield of the good soil, the 30 or the 60 or the 100. Luke's version of this particular parable uh, goes in a slightly different direction. He takes a little bit more. It goes in the same direction, but he just takes a little bit more time to describe the kind of person that is a good soil. Let's see. It's on the screen. Here it is. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. And I always want to take the rest of the time this morning to unpack this particular sentence. What does it mean to be one of a noble and good heart, to retain the word of God, and to persevere in order to produce a crop? So let's take the first bit, okay? What is a noble and good heart? If we want to be good soil, this fourth, this fourth type of ground, what, is, what does this mean? A good and noble heart. In the Greek of the original translation of the Bible, the two words used for good and noble here are agathos and kalos. Now, we have just got the word good in English. In Greek, they had four words for good, all with a slightly different texture and blend. And Jesus, Luke says, puts two of these together to describe the person with good soil. Good um, and noble. And they speak both to the idea of being good, so like good in your heart, more, more morally pure, um, like full of integrity, shining through from the inside, but also doing good, beautiful in expression, something that looks pure and shines through with beauty. And I guess I want to ask the question, what is Jesus really getting at here? What does it mean to have a good and noble heart, a part of beauty? And I think the key to having a good and noble heart is, is a soft heart, is a, a heart that is open, a heart that does not get hard and cynical and prideful. A good heart is a heart that tries to resist pride, tries to resist selfishness, tries to resist always being right, and tries to maintain a posture of humility and openness. 
we know this in a kind of street uh, streetwise kind of way, don't we? We we say oh, a person's got a good heart. We know we're working with somebody with a good heart because it feels like it kind of shines through. And equally, we know when it feels like we're all, we're operating with the opposite of that. When somebody's tight-fisted, or difficult, or self-seeking agendas, or manipulative, or you can't really trust them, we would say that doesn't feel like a good heart. Uh, we're working with. People will use that kind of language on the street. You think what Jesus is getting at is a good heart is an open heart, a heart that's open to love, giving and receiving love. And because of that, this kind of a heart is fertile soil. I have found throughout my years in church life, but beyond church life as well, you can always work with somebody who has a sweet spirit and a soft heart. That doesn't mean they're a pushover. That doesn't mean they don't have opinions. That doesn't mean that they're not strong-minded or assertive or any of those things. It just means that there is a humility in their heart to not necessarily think that they have it all sorted and they don't need help and they don't need to be vulnerable or any of those things. A, a good heart is a, is a, is a soft heart. And, and that kind of a heart is there for fertile ground, for a seed to take root and to be looked after. Um, and a soft heart is the kind of heart that has allowed the rain of God's presence to come upon it, to soften it. The beauty of what we're even hearing as we you know, go through Alpha, hearing stories as we go, th- go through this on Sunday nights, and th- those of you who even your own story of salvation or you will know others will know that people with a hard heart when they come into the presence of God, there's something about his, his presence that softens our hearts, that breaks into the crust of our pride and allows his, allows his presence to soften us up. Um, it's like the farmer tilling and plowing the ground. The Bible says in the Old Testament that the mountains melt like wax in the presence of the Lord. And, um, and, and, and so we want to have soft hearts, but it feels like what I want to say on this for, for some of us this morning, it's, it's hard as you go through life to retain a soft heart. I don't know when, in, when you first came to the Lord or um, maybe when you were younger, you just can remember what it was like to have that innocence and that softness of heart, the first love kind of heart posture. It's like a sponge. It's, it's, it's like clay in the hands of the Lord, ready to be shaped and soft. And it can be a challenge to kind of keep coming back to this. I remember I was thinking about Mary and Zachariah in the New Testament. So you've got Zachariah and Mary, both have an angelic appearance. Zachariah is being told that you know, in his old age, his wife's going to have a baby and she's going to be, it's going to be John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. Mary is going to be told that she's going to be the, the mother of Jesus. Two angelic appearances, but two slightly different responses. Mary is hard, is, is soft. Um, she, um, they're both a bit freaked out, as you would be, if an angel just showed up and gave you a message. But Mary has an innocence and a curiosity. Zachariah, his heart might not have been hard, but he's cynical. How could this ever be the case? He allows something in his heart to already have made a decision about how silly this actually is. 
There's a difference, you see, be, about being skeptical and being cynical. There's an old preacher who used to say, if you're skeptical about things, if you're skeptical, skeptical about things in church and stuff, that's, that's fine. Healthy skepticism is all right. Just come and chat to us about it. Cynicism is different than skepticism. If you're skeptical, come and talk to somebody about it. If you're cynical, you need to go and talk to God about it. Because it's something that's happened in your heart that you need to deal with with God, and you're always going to carry that until the presence of God melts it. And uh, <clears throat> I just get the sense that there may be some of us here in that place this morning where skepticism has moved to cynicism. It's been hard for you to keep your heart soft, maybe because things have happened that have been really, really tough, or people have said things that have been really, really tough. But over time, it's it's harder to keep your heart soft. And sometimes the thing that actually makes it a little bit harder is just familiarity. We just start to get a little bit entitled. We think the same things, we expect the same things, and familiarity, as the old statement says, can sometimes bring contempt and can bring a hardness. And God wants us to humble ourselves this morning so that we can receive the seed of his presence again. And I just really felt to say before I move on to the next point that there's some of us here, I feel, that you have been fruitful in the past. Your heart has been soft and you have borne fruit for the kingdom. And Jesus really wants you to know this morning that there is another yield in the field of your heart. There is another season of fruitfulness to come. But how you posture yourself is going to be dependent on if and when and how that comes. Because that's what we're learning about this particular parable. And this is where the whole idea of biblical repentance comes in. It's the word metanoia. You've you've probably heard us speak about this before. Where we keep on changing our thinking. Where it's a continual thing that we have to do. Um, I love this little phrase. Many Christians repent enough to get saved, but not enough to really see the kingdom. (laughs) And Jesus wants us to see the kingdom, to live in the reality of the kingdom. And that's why we need to have our hearts soft. And so the application for this this morning really is, is your heart soft before the Lord? Is your heart humble before the Lord? Are you ready to receive of his seed again to hear and to hear authentically? Okay, so a good and noble heart defines this good soil. Secondly, um, it hears the word of God and retains it. That's the next part of that particular sentence. Um, This is interesting. The good soil is able to retain God's word. Some translations will say, hold fast to God's word. Retaining God's word. Sometimes retaining is is hard. Do you ever read a book and you've read through the two pages and you're like, I can't even remember what I just read. Anybody ever do that? Yeah, just it's difficult sometimes to retain things, even mentally, as we as we read. But if we think about this in the natural first, it's maybe a little bit more helpful. Um, Every farmer, when he plants a seed, he doesn't necessarily expect the fruit to come right away. Sure, he doesn't. He, he, even good soil has to take time to retain the seed that is planted within it if there is any fruit to come. The soil, we could say, incubates the life that is contained in the seed. Maybe for months and months until the fruit breaks through the ground. And and this period of retaining the seed, the soil is creating the conditions for the seed to develop a root system 
that's going to grow down before it grows up. Something's going to happen under the soil that's really important for what's going to come above the soil. And unlike the other three types of ground which we've looked at, this seed, the good soil, is developing a root system that cannot be seen. And so this is therefore a critical, critical phase of the life cycle of the seed. And why, why I want to really emphasize this point is some of us have received promises from God or felt the Holy Spirit speak to us. But this phase where you don't actually see the fruit of the promise is critical. It's a critical phase because the fruit that is going to come from this seed needs time to settle itself in your heart, in your spirit, and have time to mature and develop a root system underneath the soil. Some of the best work that God does is in the hidden places, in the secret place. Um, think of Mary's womb. Think of what was forming in that womb for those nine months before anything was seen. But the deliverance of the whole world had to be retained. The promise had to be kept. And so the characteristic of a heart that is good soil, it knows by faith that when it receives a promise, when it receives a seed, it's 100% confident in the seed. It just needs to settle itself to realize that there's going to be a season where the seed needs to take root. And it protects, therefore, the seed, knowing that if it does that, one day it will literally see fruit beyond what it could originally have imagined. And this is why I like to come back to Mary again. Because Mary um, is such a wonderful example of a good and noble heart. So she just said, I don't really know how this is going to work out, but be it unto me according to your word. Whatever you want to do, Jesus, I'm okay with that. That's the good and noble heart. But more than just have a good and noble heart, she retained that promise as well. Look at this verse. I always love this verse. Luke chapter 2, 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Do you ever feel like you're in a, you hear a talk or you're in a conversation with a friend or you feel like God says something and you're not quite sure how it's going to work out, but there's a little leap in your spirit. There's a little sense of, oh, I think this is for me, but I'm not quite sure what it's going to mean. Or maybe you think that for your kids, because this is what Mary was doing. She was looking at Jesus and the things that the, Jesus was doing as he started to grow up and as he began his miracles. And she didn't fully understand it, but she treasured them in her heart. She retained the promise. I, I want to challenge, uh, encourage you more than challenge you, but an encouraging challenge for you as parents. Have you received promises for your kids? Have you looked at them at times and thought, this is what this child could be? This is what I think this person could be? What are you doing with that seed? Is it lying dormant or are you retaining it? In other words, are you treasuring it? Are you pondering it? Are you bringing it out before you and praying over it and bringing it before the Lord and, and, and meditating on it and, and almost cultivating deep in your heart that promise so it can become everything that they were born to be. Mary, this is what I want you to hear. Mary just didn't receive the seed. She retained the seed. And I, I get a sense that that's a really important word for some people this morning, that not only are you supposed to receive the seed, but you're supposed to retain the seed. That's what the good soil does. It allows the root systems 
of the seed to go deep. Retaining, and the retaining things in the kingdom is never passive. It's not like retaining something like, I'll go and put that in the cupboard and come back and find it in five years' time. It's, it's what they call active waiting, where you treasure and you ponder and you think and you meditate. You bring it back to your conscious imagination. You allow yourself to dream of what it could be, and you prayerfully then intercede. Um, you intercede and prayerfully bring that before the Lord because some things don't just need prayed for, some things need prayed through. And, and God has given us certain promises, and you have, we have often questioned the promise but the seed's always good. The promise can be trusted 100%. We just have to learn as the soil of our hearts. We just have to learn how to have a good and noble heart and how to retain it. And I want you to think this morning of promises God has given you, seeds that have been planted in your heart, and how God might be challenging you this morning to retain them in a way that they can grow into the good soil that he um, wants them to be planted in so that they will bring forth fruit beyond what you can imagine. Maybe for some of us, we have to pull out some of the weeds that are trying to choke that promise um, in order to receive again the seed in good soil. So the soil is characterized by a good and noble heart, by hearing the word of God and retaining it, and then finally, by persevering. By persevering, they produce the crop. Now, don't read through all of that just to, for a moment, or otherwise you'll get lost. Let me just bring out each of the points, okay? By persevering. So a good and noble heart characterizes good soil, the ability to retain a promise. And then finally, by persevering. We love that word, don't we? persevering, yeah? That's one of our favorite words. <laughs> the ESV translates this as patient endurance. And what I want to try and describe to you this morning is this is all over the New Testament. But it's not all over our society today. It's not, it's, we, it's almost like the complete opposite the way our culture and society is set up. We don't want to patiently endure for anything. We, um, we, we, we get head up by the size of the drive through McDonald's because <laughs> yeah? we don't want to patiently endure anything. And this, this, is, this is difficult for us. Mark Sayers says, we see things through the lens of speed. Jesus sees things through the lens of seed. <laughs> it's, a completely it's a completely different filter of how we understand life. Jesus thing, sees things through the lens of seed. Our culture sees things through. We're conditioned to see things through the lens of speed. The world wants to encourage us to make the most out of life. But God wants to put his life inside us. It's a different thing, isn't it? The world wants you to short-circuit the process, to find the quickest way to get from A to B. Jesus wants to use the process to form you into his very likeness. And through these parables, Jesus was schooling the disciples in the art of uncompromising patience. <laughs> he, was, he was helping them understand that discipleship, in the words of Eugene Peterson, who actually stole this line from Frederick Nietzsche, and he said, 
something along the lines of discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And this is a virtue and theme that is right through the New Testament. And it's a shame that it's really undertaught in the church. It's a shame <laughs> that it's really uh, underappreciated in the church and undervalued. And I just want to take a moment. Um, go, this is kind of going to be like quick fire. I'm going to read a load of verses just to try and prove a point here. The word up on the, if you go back one wait a minute, Stephen, um, up on the top right, the word up here at the top, right here, is the Greek word for this particular word, perseverance. It's sometimes translated perseverance. Some translations tr um, translate it as um, patient endurance. Some just as endurance. It's all the same word, hupermone. And um, it's a great word, isn't it? Hupermone. But he, here's, here's how much it's used in the New Testament. Okay, we'll go on to the next one. G Jesus used it up here, Luke 21, 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Romans 5, verse 3 and 4. And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. It's hupermone, and perseverance, there it is again, proven character and proven character hope. Romans 8, 25, but if we hope for what we do not see through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. 2 Corinthians 12, the distinguishing marks of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. 1 Thessalonians 1, constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance or patient endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father. But flee from these things. First Timothy, you man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Hebrews 10. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have a great crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. The <laughs> race that is set for us. James 1, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You get in the picture? Yeah? A couple more. First Peter 1, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. James 1, Blessed is the one who patiently endures under trial, for when they have stood the test of time, they will receive the crown of life. On and on and on it goes. The apostles are saying to the early church, you have to keep going. You have to patiently endure. You have to not give up. You have to believe that there's a seed that has been planted in your spirit, that even though in the natural it looks the opposite at times, that you hold on, you cling on, you keep on fighting, you keep on believing, because this is the essence of faith, the things that we do not yet see, but what we hope for, patiently endure, hupermone. <laughs> patiently endure, persevere, hold on, do not give up. And then we get to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. The church is under massive attack, serious persecution. These are some of the last words that are spoken to the early church that we have in the Scripture. And John, who wrote the book of Revelation to the churches all across Asia, and he said this, I, John, your brother and fellow participant in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance in Jesus. He's identifying with them. We are, we, we, we are in a world that is set up against the plans and purposes of God. 
yet God loves it, and yet we're not always going to feel that, and so we have to learn how to patiently endure. And then twice, actually, I've got it here in my notes. Let me just make sure I've got this right. Seven times in total in the book of Revelation alone, it uses the word patient endurance. Of the seven churches that John writes to in it, it's mentioned four particular times to the four different churches. And then when you get almost right into the middle of Revelation, the angels begin to cry out. And this is what they cry twice, the exact same scripture in chapter 13, verse 10, and verses 14, verse 12. All the things that are kicking off at the end of the world as we read about the all the kind of apocalyptic kind of stuff. And the angels cry, this calls for the patient endurance of the saints on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. It's almost like... This, this, is, this, this is the way this thing is all going to unfold. This is the way the world's going to unravel. This calls for the patient endurance of the saints. Patiently enduring was the way that the church, the early church, made sense of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. It was the way the first followers of Jesus kept the fire burning in their heart to live for Jesus. It was the way that even through their suffering, their joyful anticipation deepened. And the early church exemplified patient endurance in a way that's kind of foreign to how we understand life today. It was as peculiar then to be patient as it is now. And yet they did it. And they were formed, as the early church were formed in the presence of God, they became a non-anxious presence in the midst of a pagan culture. And as they did that, the world looked on and realized that being patient is not some weak, flimsy mode of survival, but it's a strength, the quiet strength that means that through the church, through Jesus, the church was going to overcome in the world. And over the last 2,000 years, the movement, the organization, it's not really an organization, it's a movement, but it's a body of people that has remained over the last 2,000 years that have kept on overcoming when every other empire has come and gone, has been the church of Jesus Christ. Those who, despite all hell breaking loose around them, patiently endure a good and noble heart that retains the promises of God and patiently endures. How did they patiently endure? The secret is connected to the meaning of the word. Now, I know that we're not all necessarily, like I'm not fluent in Greek, but now and again, I find a wee word that I get really, really excited about, okay? I know the most of us, including me, the most we know about Greeks, the Greek yogurt, right? But now, now and again, there is some really, really important words that is good for us to know. This word, hypermone, which I just explained to you was the word for patient endurance. That, that, all those verses, that particular word is in them, okay? And then the first, but the first part of this hupo means to be under something that's very heavy. But the second word is the word mone, which means to stay or to remain or to continually abide in one place. So for those of you who know maybe wee bits of your Bible, I know that John 15 is the passage where Jesus talks about being the vine and his father, the vine dresser. And if you want to bear fruit, you have to remain. 
um, I don't expect you to remember this, but way back during COVID when we taught on John, we would have taught on this particular passage. And I cannot remember off the top of my head, but I think it's seven or eight times within that chapter in John 15, it uses the word money to talk about remaining in Jesus. To bear fruit, you be like the branch that remains in the vine. Money, money, money. You put money with hooper money, and you realize that perseverance is not just gritting it out, even though it feels like that someday. It's not just you know, clenching your fist and your teeth and hoping that you'll make it through. Ultimately, hooper money, ultimately, patient endurance is learning how to abide in Jesus. It's learning how to rest in the presence of God. It's learning how day after day to get up and start your morning, go through your day, abiding, remaining in the person of Jesus Christ who has overcome the world, who has overcome sin, death, hell. Abide, abide, abide. And as you abide, we patiently endure. The early church was good soil because they learned how to abide in Jesus. They didn't give up. They just kept loving Jesus because Jesus was worth it. They hung on. Patient endurance is not, it's not self-strength. It's not just pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. It's the opposite of anxious, forceful, controlling behavior. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, patience self-control. How, how do you grow in the fruit of the Spirit? Not by reading the Bible as some self-help book that just magically will happen the more you know. No, you grow in patient endurance. You grow in the fruit of the Spirit when you learn how to abide in Jesus, where you say, Jesus, I don't want to live to me again this day. I want to die to myself in order that your life will be formed in me. You're here today because somebody patiently endured for you. Somebody prayed for you. Whether it was your family, maybe you don't come from a Christian family. It might have been your parents, it might not have been, but people patiently endured. People hung on to promises for you and for your life. We're here today because the early church hung on. They didn't allow the flame of the love of Jesus, which at times felt like a flicker in their hearts. They didn't allow it to be snuffed out. They kept on abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus. And I, I just feel like that's the way we win the world. <laughs> in the power of the Spirit, through the cross of Jesus, we patiently endure. We hang on until the day He comes again. And, uh, and sometimes that feels like um, it takes a bit of time. Somebody once said, God's only got two speeds, suddenly and slowly. Yeah? And even when it's a suddenly, it feels like he takes his time to do it. Yeah? That's how it can feel sometimes. But God is still working out his purposes in the world, and we are called to patiently endure. Um, in just jumping back for one second, and I'm just bringing this in to close now. Um, and I just want to apply this to us as the church. Um, as we patiently endure step by step 
You know, we used to sing that we want to see Jesus lifted high. Remember that song? And sometimes we did the actions, you know, step by step, we're moving forward. <laughs> little by little, we're taking ground. Every prayer, a powerful weapon. Strongholds come. Tumbling down and down and down. Yeah, we used to do that, right? For those of you who were brought up in the church life, right? Um, we used to sing that song, but step by step, we're moving forward. Little, little by little, we're taking ground. Look what God said to the children of Israel in Egypt. And when he told him about the, the fact that we're going to come into the land. I will not drive, this is, he's talking about the enemy, the other strongholds. I will not drive them out before you in a single year. Like we want it all to happen in a single year, don't we? But God was like, it's like a child saying, it's like, it's like giving your child their inheritance when they're six. They haven't matured enough to know what to do with it and how to use it. They have to mature into the kind of people that look like their parent. And Jesus wants us to mature into his likeness. And so God said to the children of Israel, I will not drive them out in a single year. Otherwise, the land will become desolate and wild animals will multiply against you. In other words, you, you wouldn't know how to deal with it. You, you haven't grown up and matured enough to know how to fully possess the land. But then he says, little by little, I will drive them out ahead of you until you become fruitful and possess the land. And as a body, we, um, we've seen God do some supernatural, miraculous provision things over the last few, few months. It's been unbelievable. And we want to celebrate that. The suddenlies, when they come, we want to see God break in in miraculous healing. We want to see um, salvation come in miraculous ways. We want those suddenly moments where it's like, wow, we're living for those moments. But the suddenlies only come in the soil of the slowly. Otherwise, it's like pouring a wine into an old wineskin, as Jesus said. It just, it'll be good for one night, and then it bursts and destroys the wine and the wineskin. But when we take time to patiently endure, to slowly but surely, faithfully get up every day and try our best in the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, to follow Jesus, we create the seedbed for God to do some remarkable things. And as a body of people here in Emmanuel Portadown, I believe that the Lord wants us to hunger, to cry out, to be expectant for the suddenlies, but to make sure that we've created a seedbed of slowly, day by day, walking with Jesus, living in his presence, learning to be content when we have much and we have little, and the order to see his kingdom come. Let me tell you a story as I finish. In 1736, there was a Moravian missionary called George Smith. Some of you will have heard us talk about the Moravians. They were the most wonderful and still are the most wonderful followers of Jesus. They came from Moravia and they um, settled in uh, Count Ludwig Zinzendorf's um, estate. And that's where... Uh, a move of God really happened that um, the Holy Spirit fell upon these Moravian peasants. They prayed for a hundred years and that's where many of the modern day mission movements have sprung from. And after they began to pray, many missionaries were sent out. George Smith was one of them and he went out in 1736. So I think the Holy Spirit fell in that particular location in 1727. And so five or six years later, missionaries have started to go out. Missionaries didn't really go out before that. It's a relatively in the last two or three hundred years, new phenomenon. And he went to um, a place um, called Table Bay, which is beautiful, in Cape Town. He was only 26 years old. 
went on his own to share the gospel with the native people. The Dutch Reformed Church had a bit of a presence there, but they had made no effort to evangelize the indigenous people. And um, Smith went to try and do that. And in September that year, he established a little base beside the river where he met a group called uh, Khoi Khoi, led by the tribal chief was called Africo, funny enough, who would become one of his core converts. In 1738, he moved <clears throat> to a place, which I can't say in Afrikaans, but it means the Valley of Baboons. That's what it was called then. There was 11 indigenous people, 11 men, 12 women, and four young children, and he established a mission base there. As the mission station, Smith built a house, planted a vegetable garden, and some fruit trees. He was an apprentice butcher, so he did the odd butchering job for neighboring farmers. But they built their huts with women collecting food, men hunting wildlife, lived among them, read them the Bible, taught them to read and write and how to plant and sow. For seven years, he worked and with them, taught them the scriptures and preached Jesus. But it was hard work. On one occasion, this is what he said. It was as if the devil would not release their souls due to unbelief. Think about that. Think about the sacrifice you make. Seven years teaching them to read the Bible, plant seeds, grow crops. And, um, and yet, slowly but surely, some progress started to be made. But the church of that particular day, the Dutch Reformed Church, didn't like what Smith was doing and wanted him out, particularly when he came to baptize a few of the early converts. And he began to suffer persecution. He left in 1744 with a sad heart. He died in 1785 at the age of 76. And for 50 years, no other missionaries were allowed to enter South Africa to do what he did. In 1792, about 60 years later, after 50 years after Smith first went, three Moravian missionaries eventually got into South Africa. They expected to find no traces of their predecessors' work because there'd been no really good stories. But they discovered a ruined house, his old ruined house from 50 years ago, traced out as the origins of his garden and found a flourishing pear tree which he had planted all those years ago. They asked the Khoi people if they had any memory of the missionary who'd left them over 50 years before. To, the, to their surprise, they were told to visit the hut in which an old woman lived. The old lady was now almost blind. She said, Mr. Smith, baptize me and give me the name Magdalena. She then fumbled in the corner of her hut, pulled out a couple of sheepskins and disclosed a leather bag within. Inside was the New Testament Schmidt had given her. They asked if she could read it. Then she pointed them to her granddaughter, who with her mother had been taught to read from the New Testament. And she read it. She read the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Since that day, hundreds of Moravian missionaries have now spread across South Africa. The place that was called the Valley of Baboons is now called Glendenhall, the Valley of Grace. This is the actual area where Schmidt first put his mission base in 1737. A hundred years later, when slavery was to be abolished in South Africa and the slaves were freed, the indigenous people flocked to the Valley of Grace because they knew that this would be the place where they could find safety and refuge late in the 1800s. And 150 years after that, in recent history, Nelson Mandela, when he became the president of South Africa, guess what he called the presidential palace? Glendon Hall. 
the valley of grace. Imagine a seed planted in 1727, seeing after 50 years, seeing nothing happen. 250 years later is now the place where the president calls his home after. All because somebody faithfully trusted the seed and created the conditions for the seed to do what the seed will always do if it finds a good and noble heart, if it learns how to retain the seed, and if it patiently endures believing that the root system that has been developed under the ground will bear fruit, and fruit beyond what we could ever imagine in the years to come. And I believe that God is calling us as a community to steward the seed of the gospel in this city, in this nation, and it's going to take us to be people of good and noble hearts, to keep on. That's why the prayer meeting is so important, because it's the place where we retain the seed. It's a place where we treasure. It's a place where we activate the seed. It's a place where the spirit gets hold of the promise of God and brings it alive in our hearts, and it's not this like dormant thing that just lies in it. It sparks it. It reminds us. It builds faith in us. And then we patiently endure. We wait for the slowlies. Uh, we wait for the suddenlies as we create the soil of the slowlies. Um, and I also just want to finish by saying I believe that there's some of us here individually. And, um, and this is just important for you this morning um, because there's some personal promises that even as we've spoke this morning, you've felt you need to reactivate by just creating those conditions for the softness of your heart to receive the promises of God. And so before I ask us all to stand, I just want to invite the Holy Spirit just to um, move in a, a f- maybe a few individuals' lives. If you, if you just feel there's something quite personal here that you need to respond to this morning, would you stand? I'd just love to pray for you. Um, and then I'm going to ask everyone to stand in a moment. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I just want to take a moment and pray for all of us, particularly for those who really feel specifically this morning that certain dreams or promises that you have given them, that you're reminding them of those this morning. And I pray in the presence of the Lord this morning as they respond to you, that you would activate by the power of your spirit. You would activate that seed within them again. It would feel almost even tangibly that they can sense it deep in their hearts and in their spirits. And I pray, Lord God, that that in your beautiful hands, God, they would feel that your hands get into the soil of their heart and just pull out any weeds, anything that's brought a sense of unbelief, anything that's caused it to feel like it's crusting over a little bit. Not as soft as what it was. God, I pray in your presence that you would soften and that you would tell like a perfect gardener the ground within their hearts to carry the seed of your presence and of your promises. 
Thank you, Jesus. Why don't we all stand now, just as we close? And Father, as we all um, as we all stand together and as a church family, God, as we <clears throat> remind ourselves of all that you've done for us and all that you want to do, we ask that God that you would make us all men and women a church family that together incubate hold the seeds of God for this community that we have been called to represent you well. And I just ask you, Jesus, that Holy Spirit, you would help us to be good stewards, good farmers of that ground, to tend to the soil of our hearts, um, individually and collectively together. And in all of this, Lord, that you would get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going